Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Saladin Ambar, who is the author of Reconsidering American Political Thought, A New Identity. This book was published in 2020 by Rutledge Press, and I had the pleasure of reading it both in galleys and now in actual form. Um, And I'm thrilled to be able to talk with Saladin about this new book, which I think is really important in our thinking about American political thought very broadly and understanding it in historical context. But first, I'd like to welcome Saladin Ambar to our show and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Lily. Sure. Thanks. It's uh, great to be with you. Um, So I am a a senior scholar at the Center on the American Governor at the Eagleton Institute of Politics and an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Um, My main areas of focus have been the American presidency and governorship um, with uh, real um, additional focuses in um, race and ethnic politics and American political thought. Um, I was not um, inclined to write a text or work in American political thought at the time I was asked to do so uh, by Rutledge. I was working on other things, but I was approached uh, initially by Westview Press, and then that press actually was subsumed under Rutledge. And to make a long story short, uh, I was asked if I'd be interested in continuing uh, to think about writing a textbook, um, uh, which is something that I had not done before. And then I sat down with uh, Natalia Mortensen, who was the uh, editor, uh, the acquisitions editor, and we talked about what I thought would be a good textbook, one that I would be interested in writing, and that's one that would have race and gender at the fore of discussion and analysis. And so um, she agreed. We had uh, some good conversations about that, and that's how I came to write um, Reconsidering American Political Thought. And I did certainly want to start off with that that question and that sort of perspective on thinking about American political thought. And you, you dive right into that with regard to a kind of conversation around the founding um, of the United States, as well as the arrival of Europeans onto the continent. Um, and you talk a lot about leapfrogging. Um, and so I wanted to ask you first about the sort of starting place for the book itself in terms of the content analyzed, but also around this broader question of how to forefront race and gender in context of American political thought. Well, I appreciate you um, asking that question. Yeah, it's always fascinated me um, discussions of when America became America. Um, politically, culturally, uh, in any number of ways. And um, obviously, there's 
um, perennial discussion about the Constitutional Convention, and especially, especially in light of recent events, thinking about 1787 as the birth of the country. And certainly uh, people in American political thought have uh, framed the true founding of America as 1776 in the Declaration, and, and on it goes. But most American political thought texts begin with the Puritans um, and the New England founding. And I've been curious about that um, and have uh, thought long and hard about why that doesn't quite tell uh, the whole story and maybe not the best story of how this country uh, and its political thought was really formed. And so, um, as most of your listeners, I, I'm sure, are aware, there's been lots of discussion around the year 1619 and uh, the arrival of Africans uh, into America, into Jamestown, and um, those first uh, 20 Africans um, being enslaved persons as a kind of um, harbinger of what was to come in, in this very uh, complicated republic, uh, ultimately. And I certainly thought that uh, it was interesting how any number of political theorists uh, and thinkers and office holders from Abraham Lincoln to Alexis de Tocqueville and writers in American political thought have tended to jump over certain founding moments for those they've preferred. Um, Perhaps most famously, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville choosing to ignore or at least uh, somewhat disregard the Virginia founding for the New England one precisely because that founding had slavery attached to it. Um, and I thought uh, that there's nothing particularly um, magical, if you will, about 1619, other than to suggest that uh, we have to think about the fact that American slavery is the singular uh, institution that has defined what it's meant to be an American um, vis-a-vis the concept of liberty. and Thinking about what that initial landing of sorts meant, um, I was drawn to try to focus readers' attention on not only what that meant for African Americans or whites or others, but certainly for the indigenous people who were ultimately displaced um, over decades and eventually centuries um, uh, because of the way early Americans, Europeans in America, um, began to perceive labor and liberty. And, and you also talk about how this book itself is not to necessarily be read as the primary document, but as a, a kind of companion document with regard to thinking about American political thought. And how does that also relate to, you know, what documents people should uh, pay attention to or um, dive into in terms of this founding concept? Right. Well, in my initial discussions with Rutledge, uh, you know, I wanted to emphasize the fact that um, this book should be accompanied by perhaps other texts that have more documents attached to them. This is really a a discussion of those documents and really some of those documents and or ideas that have really gotten short shrift over the years by political scientists and and political theorists. Um, You know, there's no question that the Puritan founding and people like Cotton Mather and others are a good place to begin. But I also wanted to include um, historians and discussions of maybe what some of those early thinkers and their works um, have not been, um, those works that have not been sort of raised to um, eye level, so to speak, uh, in discussions and writings um, by those within the discipline. And so I wanted to 
um, take the opportunity to engage, um, frankly, the way we talk about and write about and research American political thought within the academy, uh, in addition to having this be a book uh, that was teaching students about that political thought in history, uh, I wanted it to be um, very much a kind of critique of the way we approach it. And I was hoping that these chapters um, that really and very much are essays uh, would accompany those texts like the Federalist Papers, uh, like, um, you know, John Adams's er, writings on um, the Declaration um, uh, to Abigail and her response to Remember the Ladies. I wanted to uh, place before those documents a kind of political thought in history that in some ways has been lost or de-emphasized over the years. And and so in terms of sort of getting the focus to shift a little bit from, as you say, Jonathan Edwards or Cotton Mather, um, also John Adams and Abigail Adams, um, you've, you're sort of asking the reader to look at other sources of political thought. Can you talk a little bit about some of the less common <laughs> readings um, and writers <laughs> that you've um, you've sort of shifted our focus towards? Right. Well, you know, I suspect most uh, Americans aren't getting their early American history from F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby, but I, I find it striking how often in our literature, and certainly the best of American literature over the years, um, has have paid attention to um, critical historical moments and episodes and have uh, proffered their own visions of what the country is or should be. And certainly, uh, I think um, for many of our students who may not be predisposed to picking up Jonathan Edwards or, um, you know, you know, the... Uh, speech on the Arabella, you know, a model of Christian charity or the city upon a hill, if you will, um, that, but they may have been, may be interested in Gatsby. They may be interested in Toni Morrison. They may be interested in um, film that speak to some of these episodes. And I also happen to think that um, the way American political thought ultimately becomes ingrained um, is through the kind of cultural references and pointers that go beyond the text. And since so many of us are engaged in that kind of learning, if you will, and maybe I should put that in quotes, um, that it was, uh, it'd be wise uh, to draw uh, my own thoughts from my own thoughts on, on those uh, kinds of uh, documents and, and cultural reference points to kind of educate further um, students, faculty, all of us about how we think about American political thought because certainly um, there's a lot of myth-making, frankly, in lots of that literature. And, and on occasion, particularly with Melville and others, um, there's uh, a good deal of uh, myth-busting. And I think um, certainly it makes, for me at least as a writer and someone who thinks about this stuff, uh, all the more interested in the subject. And I was hoping that students uh, might be inclined to be interested as well. And that's one of the things that you say that you set out to do is to consciously integrate literature into this concept of American political thought and the role that the writers of America have had their role, their hand in, and having us think about, um, as you say, we, we, we're, we're not all going to read all 85 Federalist Papers. 
Um, I torture my students enough. I, I think they would rebel if I had them read all of them. Um, but also, and, and, and also not asking them to read the Anti-Federalists or all of Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. Um, and so what is it about the American writers themselves over two and a half centuries, three centuries, four centuries now that, that helps to th- help us think about American political thought? Well, for starters, I think um, American political thought, just as a discipline, um, has a, a kind of um, oh tenuous place uh, within the larger field of political theory uh, and certainly political philosophy. In part because, as I reference in the in the text, um, you know, Cornell West and others have argued there's been a long-standing evasion of American philosophy, and if we as a people tend to be pragmatists with a small p and very pragmatic and a-philosophical in our approach and maybe even a-historical in terms of uh, the way Americans uh, are so future-oriented, that historically writers have tended to fill in the gap. They've been in many ways um, the kinds of uh, philosopher teachers who've helped people uh, try to think about more philosophically, more theoretically about um, the nature of who we are as Americans. And I frankly would stack up, uh, for example, Ralph Ellison's chapter, uh, Liberty Paints uh, in Invisible Man, with anything I've read in American political thought. It's just brilliant uh, in terms of thinking about the ways in which whiteness was created. Um, and we could certainly, I could point to um, uh Omi and Winant and any number of scholars who've talked about the construction of race in America, but there's Ralph Ellison doing it for you, talking about how white paint is created and optic white is the best white uh, and so forth. And I think um, when students do read the documents, when they do come across the Federalist Papers uh, and all of the other important speeches and, and items that are part of what we want students to come away with, uh, when they have that literature uh, before them in their minds, I think it just goes all the more deeper for them. It certainly does for me. Um, and maybe this is just the sort of the bizarre way I think, but I don't quite think so as bar- bizarre. I think I agree I, with you. I, I think it helps. <laughs> and, and the writers present us with images. I mean, I think, I think that's also why I am drawn to um, narratives. Um, not only written, but also filmic and televisual in terms of sort of what do you see and understand from this narrative, this story that you're being presented with, because it often is indelible in terms of an image that's created as opposed to the abstraction of a discussion of factions in Federalist N, um, when you have all the King's men as a sort of com- companion to that. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, the way that you threaded sort of politics, race, and gender as essentially the, the variegated pieces of this book. Um, and you wove them together across the history of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of way that you were able to really braid those pieces together? Well, you know, let's take a common um, understanding of American democracy, right? And, and 
for example, like in the 1820s and 30s, this so-called age of Jackson, thinking of how this period is really the age of democracy. And we've had books with that title, right? Um, Rise of American Democracy and so forth. And it's always occurred to me that, <laughs> you know, um, that's a very narrow way of thinking about the period. And uh, for indigenous people, for Native Americans, for African Americans, uh, and in many ways for American women, it wasn't quite the age of uh, American democracy or the rise of American democracy. There was a way that race and gender functioned uh, that in this country that assisted the rise of uh, white male suffrage. Uh, but we don't quite get that from the documents. Uh, we get, you know, well, Jacksonian democracy expanded white male suffrage, and um, there was expansion West, and there was a political thought that kind of ex- expounded that uh, as a normative good. And there were some counter thoughts to that, but we don't think about how white women were um, encouraged to settle in the American West, in part because, um, as Paul Freimer and others have argued, you know, the idea was uh, to uh, restrict white males to white women rather than indigenous women or others in the American West so that uh, whiteness could be protected, so that American democracy uh, or Heronvoke democracy that was racialized would be protected. And of course, all of this Western expansion included uh, the expansion of slavery. And so uh, for me, I think so many of our historical episodes and the way political theorists uh, and teachers of American political thought have um, described them are just imbued with uh, racial and gender-based underlying um, truths that need to be explored and deconstructed. And I I just don't think uh, we've been as good on this front, certainly in American political thought uh, as... um, perhaps other countries, and certainly um, maybe we've been good in thinking about these things in isolation rather than connecting them together in American political thought as a subfield, a way of thinking about the country. Um, So, yeah, I just, all of these episodes and, and historical moments have their tensions with race and gender, and they're oftentimes connected. And I wanted to ask you about the myth. I, I talk about this with my students a lot. Um, I often sort of have pushback from them because, of course, nobody wants to have their myths poked holes, <laughs> having holes poked in them. Um, but, of course, your your sort of chapter on Jefferson and, of, and of course, our, our constant references to Jefferson. Um, can you talk a little bit about that section of the book in particular and and to some degree what it is about the Jefferson ideals that we're still wrestling with? Sure. Well, there, there's a lot there. The foremost being probably that, you know, Jefferson is this small D Democrat who is opposed to outsized executive power, <clears throat> yet he somehow um, finds the constitutional authority to uh, purchase Louisiana. Um, this, is a, <laughs> this is a small government, you know, ward republic a philosopher who believes that, you know, large states are um, prone to um, anti-democratic practices, but he expands the country and all of a sudden empire, which is something that um, Jefferson and others had um, excoriated as, you know, anti-Republican. Guess what? Now we have an empire of liberty. Um, There are all these 
um, powerful contradictions within Jefferson and Jeffersonian thought. Uh, and that period, um, which is often portrayed and described as an empire of liberty, um, really reflects, I think, a fundamental change and movement away from earlier small r Republican thought, which said small government, limited executive power, uh, and the expansion of liberty that these were, and virtue, these were the things that had to be protected if we were to uh, retain um, our republic. Uh, and really, Jefferson jettisons much of that. However much he seems to hold it dear in his head, when the rubber meets the road, you know, we're going to push for executive power. We're going to um, push parties. We're going to uh, push expansion and um, manage this uh, empire uh, as if it were a republic. And there's, I think, a huge um, set of contradictions in that. Uh, but I'm also equally, um, I don't know, uh, mystified in ways by, uh, at times, I should say, by how so many historians and, and people who write about this period um, just take it for granted that this is just this wonderfully um, kind of uniform movement towards uh, the expansion of democracy, or at least that's what it seems they want readers to come away with. And I think we can make a very good case that uh, one of the things American political thought and certainly our history suffers from at this moment is this real movement away from democratic practices and a real uh, push towards um, limiting the rights of many people. Um, it's a, in some ways, movement away from democracy. Um, so I, I, I'm I really enjoyed writing that chapter. I enjoyed talking to people about it. I love some of the work that's been done of late on this period. Um, but it really also kind of infuriates me at times to see, you can almost hear the music in the background, you know, <laughs> you know, John Philip sues the music and yeah, you know, just playing as we get this manifest destiny going. And it, folks don't quite, um, you know, laud manifest destiny, but they seem to think or want students to come away with the idea that this is this wonderful expansion of rights. And I, you know, I just beg to differ. And then by the time we get to the Mexican-American War, um, this is truly a different kind of country slash republic slash empire than the one I think the framers of the Constitution envisioned. Uh, and I think we've got to wrestle with that. And it, it also, I mean, part of what you're pushing on in the analysis is the expectation that this is a kind of birthright. Um, and, and I think that is also a complexity with regard to the myths associated with things like Manifest Destiny um, that I find really interesting in your analysis. I wanted, I wanted to ask you a bit about the chapter that you wrote also that essentially is wrapped around the New Deal and FDR. Um, and I know this is a particular area of research and scholarship um, that you've done a lot of work on. Um, but I, I was curious as to how that particular um, inflection point um, over a sustained period of time, how that works into our understanding of American political thought in general and the way that you sort of sort of situate it in this um, sort of trajectory. It's a, it's a very fascinating period to me, in part because what FDR and uh, people like Adolf Burley and others who, who write for FDR are trying to achieve is really a, a, a revisitation of 
what the country's rights really entail, right? They want uh, folks to reevaluate the idea that rights are strictly uh, about keeping government out of your pockets or keeping government um, off of your person uh, to the idea that government is providing rights, that there's this um, positive uh, notion of rights, but also um, those rights are indeed uh, economic in nature. And that's a real movement away from uh, more conservative uh, uh, political philosophy that had, um, you know, served the nation up until that point. Um, and yet, uh, with that expansion of rights and, and movement towards um, thinking about individuals in the United States as um, uh, comprising a public uh, a set of um, goods or, or were entitled to a public set of goods uh, rather than sort of the rugged individualism that had prevailed to that point. Um, in order to accomplish that, the American state has to grow and the American state has to become not simply more bureaucratic, but more powerful, more engaged, and its tentacles have to um, uh, expand. And um, executive behavior, um, frankly, has to modernize and it also becomes more intrusive during this period. And so the same the same people who brought you the New Deal are the, are the people who brought you, uh, you know, Japanese internment, you know, um, who brought you the court packing scheme, who brought you, and I, I think you get the gist, and ultimately who brought you the national security state um, with FDR, Truman, and ultimately Eisenhower kind of overseeing that development. Uh, so it's another kind of complicated period, but uh, I do think at, uh, at the fore, the most remarkable thing about it was this effort, and largely successful, um, certainly with regard to Social Security and other kinds of benefits, uh, to get Americans to think that uh, the government that they have is not simply one to be uh, feared, uh, but one to be admired and certainly one to have expectations of that are positive and for their uh, for their own good. Um, so like so much of our political history, and I guess the history of all nations, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it is this brilliant moment where FDR is engaging in teaching people about what it means to be an American anew. And he goes through lots of history to do so. Um, he's a master teacher, and he speaks very plainly to the American people about uh the new kinds of freedoms that they have that they may not have recognized as freedoms, but now uh, they're there. Uh, and these new kinds of rights that maybe they didn't know they had, but have always been there and certainly need to be there now. Um, I, I do think uh, it's, it's a very wonderful period for um, thinking about who we are as Americans or who in some ways who we became. And, and that also goes to sort of the, the sort of thesis throughout the book is this question of who are we? Um, and, and I, you know, it, you're, you're asking that question sort of again and again of authors, of writers, of politicians, um, and, and obviously of the reader to consider who are we? And towards the end of the book in the chapter um, neoconservatism and superpower, you note that um, these are reminders that American political thought is about political argument, not only uh, about not only the best way to live, but how to see the past. Can you talk about, you know, those two parts of the tension, as you say, we are a future oriented type of people. 
we are often ahistorical and aphilosophical, um, but our past is also something that we're always talking about. Um, and we've had many discussions, say, in the last week or two about the framers. Um, so can you talk about this sort of tension about the best way to live, but also how to see the past? <laughs> well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm struck by how arguably the two greatest American novels ever written, uh, Moby Dick and The Great Gatsby, have essentially the same ending. I mean, you know, we could substitute the words. Uh, Melville's a little wordier. But basically, these are about boats that are trying to go forward but can't quite do so. They're kind of stuck in the past. Uh, there's movement forward, but yet they keep returning to what was. Um, and I think there's something there about how uh, Americans want to see themselves as exceptional. And if... and, and What's at the root of exceptionalism? The way in which you were born, how you were born and bred. And, and for Americans, that means the founding documents, means how we got here. It means notions of individual freedom and, uh, and so on. And yet, if you're ever going to um, truly be uh, honest and uh, liberated from a, a kinds of falsehoods that um, hold us back, that keep those boats from moving forward, then you've really got to be honest about sort of the dark side uh, of who you are. And maybe it's because I've had too much therapy uh, over the years, Lily. But I certainly think that um, we, we've come to understand that you can't move forward without confronting uh, the darkness uh, of your past. And um, the inability to do so for Americans is really striking. I think other countries do recognize um, very forthrightly that um, the way they came into existence, and indeed much of their political history has been imbued with, you know, horror stories, frankly. And we do that, um, but very episodically, occasionally, it's not um, really a part of our national narrative uh, in the way it ought to be. You know, I had to go to uh, Washington, D.C., and ultimately Berlin uh, to experience these uh, marvelous, marvelously tragic Holocaust museums. Uh, and, and they're different. The one in America is different from the one in Berlin. They're magnificent and people should go and visit them. And I'm very happy that we have uh, a National African American History Museum in Washington. But, it, but we don't commemorate uh, the legacy of slavery in the same way. We don't look at our brutality uh, and our, um, for example, the Native American genocide um, in, in that kind of way. Um, and I do think it speaks volumes to how there's this erasure uh, in memory and in writing and in history and the way we talk about ourselves. Uh, it's uh, unhealthy for uh, maturation in much the same way that you or I or any of your listeners uh, might think about their past and um, gloss over uh, those unseemly parts and imagine them, them away. It's just uh, you're not going to be a fully developed person, and certainly we're not going to be a fully developed nation if we just um, ignore um, our past. And uh, it's got, I think, enormously important repercussions for who we might become uh, if we uh, continue to pretend or imagine away um, the darkest parts of what it means to be an American. I wanted to ask you, as you were writing this book, and, and again, I know you're deeply familiar with American letters, American writers, 
um, and and also sort of visual other visual presentations and musical presentations. Mm-hmm. Was there any particular author or authors that were kind of surprising in the way that they were able to communicate some of the sort of concepts that you were digging at? Well, I you know, and I I, I do find I I do find um, Melville. Uh, and probably people who read this book closely will think he he needs to you know lay off of Melville a little bit. <laughs> I do find him to be very attractive in his honesty about America in his writings, and I do think he's very perceptive in his stories and novels. Uh, but I was also struck by um, and continue to be amazed by it's, it's no surprise Toni Morrison and um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's work. Um, you know, but I. I, I I would also say Shirley Jackson, you know, the Gothic writers, you know, mm-hmm. who are able to get at the underside of what it means to be an, an American. And I think for Shirley Jackson, her work that reflects the um, utterly um, painful, um, in some ways triumphant, but also um, deeply disturbing uh, way women have been uh, treated and have had to exist within our democratic system. It's, um, her work is glorious. And I think, um, as much as we've read, you know, the lottery over the years, for example, we miss so much about the way that story is really at its heart about housewives in faded dresses, doing dishes, um, the girls standing aside while men, the people who own the coal businesses get down to the business of what it means to be uh, a leader in this town. And oh yeah, by the way, um, the lottery is gonna, you know, get you ultimately, Ms. Hutchinson. Um, I, I just uh, I, there's nothing more brilliant than um, than that book as a kind of approach to thinking about the shortcomings of, or that novel, or excuse me, that short story about the shortcomings of American democracy. And it's all there in a New England public square. She's situating it right there. Um, we're at the birthplace of democracy. You know, a little post office is there and, uh, you know, the bank is there and, you know, there's a kind of vote, <laughs> a ballot box of sorts. And she knows what she's doing and she's just so brilliant about it. Um, you know, those kinds of critiques I find inspiring because um, they challenge certainly me um, uh, to think about the country more expansively and I don't know. I mean, I guess you know, I could give a student John Dewey, and I hope, uh, and I hope, uh, I hope professors will continue to have students read Dewey. Um, but goodness, you know, I'll, I'll put Shirley Jackson up with Dewey or any of them uh, as someone who's getting at the heart of, you know, the challenges of being a democratic citizen in the twentieth and now twenty first century. So, those are some of the people who inspire me. Um, Ralph Ellison, and uh, among others, and contemporary writers. Uh, uh, Jonathan Franzen's work, Freedom, that I end with, uh, is a beautiful take on the idea of freedom and liberty and what it, what we have come to believe uh, is the meaning of liberty. And he's, liberty, and he's pretty harsh. It's a funny book in many ways, but he's pretty harsh. And uh, I, I, I don't know, again, this may be the way my mind thinks, uh, but if, if, if it is, it's an encouragement for all of us to find works outside of the ones we're comfortable with, find works in literature and in film and in music, etc., to inspire us to think about the country more creatively, 
uh, and more honestly? Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of understanding honestly American political thought is really at the at the heart of your book, and I think it's really an important read in that regard um, because it does do such a remarkable job bringing in the question of race and racialization and racism and gender um, inequalities, as well as you say, um, you know, questions of Native American treatment and the voice of Native Americans within American political thought. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Saladin, what are you working on now? Well, um, I am currently um, writing a, a manuscript that I hope will become a book entitled Stars and uh, Shadows, Meditations on the Political uh, meditations on the political history of interracial friendship in America from Jefferson to Obama. So I'm writing a book about interracial friendship and the politics of interracial friendship and how uh, public figures, uh, primarily politicians, many of them presidents, but also cultural icons and writers, including Shirley Jackson, um, have had these friendships that have had some way of serving the public good uh, and, or at least have uh, attempted to do so. And uh, I am, yeah, I'm about five chapters into what I hope to be a 10 chapter book, beginning with Thomas Jefferson's very uh, loose connection slash friendship of sorts with Benjamin Banneker, uh, the free African-American scientist in Maryland, whose uh, almanacs were very important, who helped survey Washington, D.C., um, and including people like Shirley Jackson and her husband, Stanley Hyman, who were really good friends with Ralph Ellison, um, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, um, and more recent cases such as Joe Biden and Barack Obama, but also thinking about Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, and a wonderful chapter that I was, I had so much fun researching Marlon Brando uh, and his relationship with James Baldwin and the March on Washington. Uh, I do think um, it's been a way for me to understand how um, democratic practices have been conveyed publicly through interracial friendships. And not all of them worked. Some of them were failures, but uh, many of them did kind of uh, model for the country how we can um, see each other as common citizens, indeed as friends, uh, beyond um, notions of race. And so that's what I'm working on right now. I look forward to talking to you about it for the New Books and Political Science podcast when it's out in print. Let's, let's hope someone will, will publish that thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for joining me today, Saladin Ambar. Um, and talking to me about Reconsidering American Political Thought, A New Identity, published in 2020 by Rutledge Press. I assume one can get a hold of this book at the usual places online, including the Rutledge website? That is correct. Yes. And any other brick-and-mortar stores you want to uh, give a shout-out to? Blackwell's in the UK, uh, Barnes & Noble. Okay. Um, so you can order it there, Amazon, if you if you so choose. Uh, it is available through a number of uh, bookstores and online uh, carriers. So there you have it. Great. Thank you for joining me today. Always great to talk to you, Lily. Really appreciate it. <laughs>